0: I am, uh, I'm going to invite June Joseph to come up and read for us this morning. As Savannah said, lots of imagery, lots of questions uh, in Revelation here, and that uh, only gets more, more vivid uh, this morning as we jump into Revelation 6. So uh, everybody, this is, this is one of your own, June Joseph. I'm Dave, by the way, and she's going to read Now it is. There we go. Here we go.
1: I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there was before me a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pound, pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked and there was before me a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sick seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it?
0: It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a tough one to say thank you for, isn't it? Yeah, it's an awesome one to come off the bench as the, uh, the preacher who doesn't preach every week anymore. Like, where are we at in Revelation? Oh, here's where we're at. <laughs> awesome. Let me pray for us uh, and for me. Lord, uh, guide our hearts and minds now. Uh, may we hear from you. You are the one we need to hear from, uh, Father, just as John uh, was receiving... This unveiling, uh, would you unveil what you want to unveil for us? Uh, Nothing more and nothing less in your name. Amen. So I was, uh, this is probably about 17 years ago when I read this passage for the first time. And I, I didn't read it for the first time this week, but when I read it for the first time this week to get ready to preach... Immediately, I had this story in my mind, and that doesn't always happen. But it was a story from about 17 years ago. I was at Portland Brew, which was not the one on the east side. There was one before that in 12 South. It was the only coffee shop. It was like there was like two businesses in 12 South at that time. And I was sitting at Portland Brew. It's probably been open for about three or four years at that point. They had just put on the front patio. For those of you who remember when they didn't have that, um, and I was having a conversation with somebody. And all of a sudden, an ambulance that was really faded, had like half of the decals gone on it, um, pulled up in front of it and kind of backed in to the porch. Which, if you know anything about even backing in uh, at that port of Portland Brew, was just kind of weird. It's like, why are you backing into this? And it pulled up to the porch and it kind of sat there for a while, and I'm still having this conversation with this person. And then all of a sudden, five people get out of the ambulance. Um, and five people who don't even look like you ever see five people who are walking together. You're like, those people don't belong together. Like they just all looked wildly different, including a woman who looked like a linebacker with a mullet down to her back and who had like a tool belt on. You're just like, why do you even have a tool belt on? So these five people walk into Portland brew, except for the last guy who kneels down and he starts monkeying with the lock on the door. And I'm sitting there trying to stay engaged in what we're talking about with this this person. And all of a sudden, I see through the window uh, one of the gentlemen grab the cash register and literally rip it off the bar and just start walking out the front door with it. And then another guy came out, had ripped the coffee machines off the wall, like the things that make, unplugged them, pulled them off, and they began to literally empty the entire contents of Portland Brew into this ambulance. Changed the locks on the door and someone walked around and goes, your time here is over, get out. What was happening was the IRS was seizing the business because Portland Brew, the owner of Portland Brew had not paid his taxes. If you're in here, sir, I'm sorry. I'm using you as an illustration. There are consequences when you don't pay your taxes, (laughs) right? We all know this. When you don't follow the law, there are outcomes. And I doubt that was the first time the owner of Portland Brew had been notified that he was delinquent on his taxes, right? There had probably been warnings and warnings and warnings, notices, but eventually that day arrived, that great day at Portland Brew. Where there were no more conversations, there were just consequences. And the consequences fell fully and totally, right, in that moment on the owner of Portland Brew. But they also fell on the rest of us in that moment, if you think about it, right? There were people, multiple people who were working there that immediately lost their jobs like that because he didn't pay his taxes, right? I paid my taxes, wait a sec. Even the customers, our conversation, (laughs) it was over, right? And the place that we had to hang now, there was no more place to hang now and have conversations. Everyone suffered to a certain degree and was caught up in the calamity, in the crunch of the consequences of him not paying his taxes. Why that story? What we just read, or what June just read, (laughs) in Revelation 6, uh, I think actually dovetails pretty well with that. It's a chapter where uh, one of the first commentators I read says, this is where people stop reading Revelation and preachers stop preaching Revelation. (laughs) Like, awesome, right? But it's a chapter, it's a vision, remember? That's what Revelation is. It's, It's an unveiling. It's a revealing of what happens in the world, right, and in history when God's creation, especially God's humanity, right, us, those who he's created because of their sin, right, and living consistently, habitually in rebellion to God's way and to God's kingdom, when the consequences, that's what this chapter is about, when the consequences of that sin, that balloon payment on sin's mortgage comes due, right? No more refinancing. No more conversations, no HELOC, right, to take out. The day has come. And what we see here is this picture of God literally allowing sin's eventual endgame to run its course. When God allows the world's sin to be unbridled, to be unrestrained. And the image here, and we'll unpack this for a little bit, Is that every, eventually every aspect of creation comes completely unglued, unhinged, folds in on itself. It's literally like God saying, Y'all wanna run your life? Have at it. Let's see where this goes. So, welcome to church, right? You're wishing you started your fall break with your other congregants a little earlier, right? Welcome to church. Remember John in Revelation, we, we this the series is called reframing reality. John is being you know shown; it's being revealed to him reality as God sees it. Which we should just stop and go. That is reality. Like how he sees things is reality. That's not how I always see things. And he's inviting John, right, and inviting the original audience who would have received this revelation, this letter, would you look at your current experience, John? John, who is in jail right now, who's imprisoned on Patmos, right, because of his testimony, other believers who are suffering great persecution under the Roman Empire, look at your current experience through the light of this lens. See things from my vantage point, not just how you see things. And what June just read in Revelation 6, it's really, it's about as vivid. Revelation hasn't even really been vivid until this. If you want to camp out in this passage, go camp out in I mean, it is vivid imagery portraying sin and the kingdom of the world and its way and its clash with the kingdom of God and its way. It's sin's, it's kind of the real focal point where sin's agenda and righteousness's agenda collide and the eventual end of the matter. So it's a tough text to read outside of the context, right? It's a dangerous thing to just jump into one specific part of Revelation. That's really true about the whole Bible. It's difficult to just hear what June just read in isolation, which is a good principle in general to not just look at things in isolation, right? So if you just look at what we just read in isolation, it can be (laughs) incredibly discouraging, incredibly despairing, right? And, And very disorienting. But remember, what we just read is a chapter in a book, right? Just like a scene in a film. I remember one time I went to a lost watch party. You guys remember Lost? It was like season three and I got invited to come over. I hadn't even watched any Lost before and I was lost, right? Like uh, definitely lost, right? So if you just read this chapter outside of the context of all of Revelation, outside of the context of all Scripture, it's just going to be super scary, right? But remember, this is a chapter inside of a book that concludes all of Scripture, and Scripture is the story that ultimately, like a janitor who read Revelation one time, who never went to seminary, said, I get Revelation. Jesus wins, right? That's the story of Scripture, that eventually Jesus conquers. He wins. That ultimately that sin and death and sorrow, all the things we're reading about in this passage, they are no more. And how that becomes true Remember, six is just a continuation of this vision of four and five, right? Which was the throne room scene. That the only one who was worthy to even open up these seals that we just read that were opened up was the Lion of Judah that when John looked, what he saw wasn't a lion who's conquering like these kingdoms are conquering, but it's a lamb who was slain that was on the throne. But that was the only one. He was the only one that was worthy to open up these seals of the scroll, which the scroll was what? The scroll was all of world, all of human history, the meaning of history, God's plan for redemption, which as he unveils this scroll, he opens up the scroll. What we see is that sin has cyclically and progressively been decimating the world, right? You've heard the phrase history repeats itself. Sin's history repeats itself, doesn't it? Just look at your own family. Generational sin repeats itself. And we see in this passage, in 6, part of how God in his sovereign will intends to bring about the full and final redemption of his creation. How he intends to bring about making all things new for the kingdom of heaven to become the kingdom of this world. As revelation 1115 says it right the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever so there's the context so let's look at a couple of things in this passage everybody yeah chin straps right helmets on here we go two things from this passage, and i 'll say some things underneath these things first one is this the coming judgment, and then secondly um, as believers, uh, the work of waiting, okay? The coming judgment and then the work of waiting. The coming judgment. So, before we talk about some of the specifics in the passage, I just, at least this is where the Lord took my mind in preparing for this. Can we just talk for a few minutes about just the topic of judgment, okay? Okay? The topic of judgment. And where I went to when I thought about the topic of judgment is that the classic film, Talladega Nights, right? <laughs> Ricky Bobby. And do you remember the prayer scene, right, where they're around the table and, you know, Will Ferrell's character saying, I like, you know, I like baby Jesus, I like him to be six pounds, 12 ounce in his fleecy gold diaper, right? And then John C. Reilly's character is like, I like to think of him like at a Leonard co- you know concert. And he's got... You know these big angel wings and a big angel choir behind them, right? You remember this? Yes? If not, I guess I can't say go watch Talladega Nights. That would <laughs> be somewhat sacrilegious, but but it's kind of true. I, we all like our Jesus like something, don't we? Right? Anne Lamont famously said, "God made man in His image, and we've been returning the favor ever since." Right? I return the favor because I like having this image of God that kind of fits with this image of God. But rarely do I ever, I've never met someone say, you know what Jesus I like? Is the Jesus who comes to judge the world for its sin. I've never, that, that won't be, that won't work in a movie, right? You know, maybe, maybe someone will go, I like it if he'll come to judge somebody else's sin. But never do I hear someone say, I, I like the Jesus that judges and judges my sin, Right? I'm down with the God who loves me. I'm down with the God who forgives me. But I really squirm at or I even reject the notion of a God who has wrath for sin, that he would judge sin. And I'd encourage us to have some integrity in our thinking this morning and to consider that those are actually two sides of the same coin, That for God to be loving and for God to be forgiving, as the Bible defines those things, right? So I'm assuming we have a biblical understanding of what love and forgiveness are according to scripture. For God to be loving and forgiving, he had to be. He has to be just and judge for sin. That's actually, if you don't know it, that's the uniqueness. The singular uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that stands up against every other major world religion against every other belief system is that God and Jesus does not have to separate those two things, but he he brings them both together, right? To be loving and forgiving and to be a just judge for sin. John 1, in John's gospel, he says, behold the Lamb of God, right, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. He takes it. Think of it that way. He doesn't just kind of magically let it go. He takes it. He carries it off on his own back because only he could take it, right? Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him what? Punished by God, judged by God. He was stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities The punishment that brought what? Us peace was on him. And by his wounds, what? We are healed. The Lamb of God takes it for us. That's why in the throne room in chapter four and five, John wept. Who can open the scroll? Who can reverse the curse of sin's rule, of sin's reign? Who can bring about redemption? When, like Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only answer is this. There's one person who could do it, the slain lamb. The one who was sacrificed. The one who was judged for our sin. Dorothy Sarah says at least God had the integrity to take his own medicine. He took the punishment. He took, Jesus took, God's full, just Wrath, that we might be loved, that we might be forgiven because we were loved. That we might be having his righteousness. John fifteen, three, no greater love. This is how the Bible defines love. No greater love that someone lay down their life. Why would they have to lay down their life? Because there's a penalty to be paid. This is how the Bible defines what love is. This is how we know what love is. First John 3:16. Jesus Christ gave his life. Love is sacrifice. Love is payment. Love and forgiveness imply that there was an actual debt that had to be canceled. Right? That's true in God's economy, but I would, I would dare you to think that's true in your economy, even if you don't believe in God. We know this, when there's a debt created, when sin has happened in your life, when someone has wounded you, done something wrong, especially to us or to someone we love, that debt does not just magically disappear with time, does it? It's either paid for by the person who created it. They either have to do something to pay off that debt to us, or if we're the person who was sinned against, We actually have to eat that cost in order to forgive that person. The cost just doesn't go away. It's costly to forgive, or it's costly to try to pay off your debt. Either you pay or I pay, but someone's got to pay. That fact alone, that when we've been wronged and we want it, We want justice. We want judgment. We want to, like they're crying out, avenge our blood. We want to be avenged, and we feel right to want it. Because it is right to want it. It should cause us to question, why then do I resist the notion of a God who is infinitely right, who is holy and true, like this passage says, being in a position to judge? If I want that as a fallen, sinful man, how much more is it okay for he who is holy, true, and right to be in that position to judge? Screw tape letters, you guys ever read those? My dad used to read them to me as bedtime stories. That's, that's kind of screwed up, isn't it? I know. Everybody's like, oh, that explains what's happening right now. <laughs> One of, you know, Screwtape Letters is a, you know, senior devil writing to a junior devil about how to tempt people, and he says this. He says, since his early youth, your patient has become accustomed to hundreds of incompatible philosophies dancing about in his head, right? Hundreds of incompatible philosophies. It's an incompatible philosophy for me to say, I want justice, I want judgment, right? I want avenged and then to say God doesn't have the right to do that. It's an incompatible philosophy. So let's call foul on our two-sided hearts here and acknowledge with those saints who are under the altar that we just read about, that God alone, he does, he has the right to judge sin. Why? Because he is the only one who has no sin. He does not sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to become our sin, right? that we might become the righteousness of God. He has the right to judge. And in this chapter, he's saying he's judging sin, and he will judge it with finality one day, which is very, very sobering. I don't say that with any sort of fun, right? It's sobering. And it's comforting in some ways. So, all right, I gotta look at my time. Whoa, what time am I supposed to be done? You guys start at 9.30. I'm kind of, at 9.45, yeah, I need to boogie. What, <laughs> what can we safely, because uh, there's a lot of different interpretations about a lot of this stuff. What can we safely uh, kind of take away from the opening of these six seals, okay? Um, in this coming judgment. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to, and it is, this is an encouragement. Um, we see it there at the very beginning of the passage. Uh, I watched as the lamb. Remember, we're in the throne room. The lamb, slain lamb who's on the throne, right? It's the slain lamb who opens the seals, which I know can be very confusing. Like, whoa, God, is God unleashing this, right? Yes. The slain lamb on the throne opens the seals, which means this. What is happening isn't outside of God's control or God's sovereignty, Right? This is not Pandora's box where he's going, oh no, right? I opened it up, what, what's happening? What have I done? It's the slain lamb who's on the throne who's opening the seals, and that means this, he has not lost control over the world. But it is displaying this, that in between the first and second comings of Christ, which is where we're living right now, that, that will eventually culminate in this day of judgment that evil and sin will be intensifying. That is what this is saying. We know, because we know the whole of Revelation and we know the whole of Scripture, that it will not ultimately win. But on the surface, for those of us in the time between the first and second comings, it will appear at times otherwise. I don't think I have to just go turn on your news, Right? And I'm not going to go all deep code like this means this and this means this. But wake up. Look at the news. Evil and sin are intensifying. And it can appear, right, that those things are winning. That that's what's winning. But we have to remember the slain lamb was the one who opened these seals, right? And so therefore, everything that's happening, even as crazy as it appears, It is happening under his control and under his sovereign will. So that's the first thing. The slain lamb on the throne is the one opening these seals. Second thing is this. Things are more than they actually seem, right? What's going on in the world is actually not just what it appears. There's more going on than what what we actually think is going on. It says there that the four living creatures, right, you there's all these creatures, there's horses, there's all sorts of stuff in here. These four living creatures are all calling out, come, come, which is a refrain. If you read all of Revelation, it starts in seven. The, the, the word come actually bookends, right? seven is, is, he is coming, and 22.20 says, I am coming, right? So come is a refrain that you hear throughout the book of Revelation. But for these four living creatures, which almost all commentators agree, it means literally the whole of creation, like Paul talks about in Romans, is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Come, come back, hurry, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. But as all of creation is groaning for the return of Christ, what John sees in this revelation is antithetical to Jesus and his kingdom, Right? It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I almost, being close to Halloween, I thought about getting one of these inflatable horse costumes, preaching in that, but I thought, man, that's, that's rolling the dice, right? As, as the, all of creation is saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, what John sees is something else coming, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And let me just say this, that, it feels surprising, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us. Here's why. Anytime anything good spiritually that is occurring in the life of an individual or in a community, resistance and sin tend to increase. If you don't know that, I'm telling you that now. Okay, now you know. If you've ever done an intervention on an addict, you know this. The closer you get to them being willing, right, to live faithful to God's way to God's word. Any time someone's saying, "I'm going to actually adopt Jesus' way, live a biblical ethic around things like how I use my money and my resources or how I view sex or how I handle my business. Any time you try to begin to follow Jesus, whatever and whenever. The kingdom of God is advancing in my life. What happens is sin gets noisy. Resistance increases. That's what Screwtape Letters is all about. If you want to read a secular book on it, go read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, about resistance. Right? Resistance increases. So when Jesus' kingdom is drawing near, because that's what's happening. Jesus, the lamb on the throne, his kingdom is drawing near. But that second coming of Christ, it's gonna be matched with and experienced with trouble and trial and difficulty because sin is actually being unleashed and unrestrained. Right? It's getting noisy. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, we could talk about each one of these horses. I'm not gonna talk about them in, in detail. There's tons of theories. You know, hardly any commentator agreed on this stuff. But for the original readers who would not have been you know, so insulated as we are from kingdoms and conquest and conflict, battle and bloodshed. You know, apostles are being martyred for their faith at this time. The four horsemen, a horse, as soon as they heard the word horse, they would have literally thought battle, right? Oxen were for farming, donkeys were for transport, horses were for fighting, So the image of these four horses being released is acknowledging there's a battle, there's a building battle that is coming, and sin is not just going to wave the white flag. It has to be conquered, right? That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, talking about sin in our own lives, he said, what? Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, overdesire, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death, right? Right? He's talking about a battle. Sin must be conquered. Sin must be defeated. And if you're like me, I'm like one of those people who uh, has a pet tiger in their house. You know, like we're like professional domesticators of sin is what we are, right? Kind of keep it around until it like bites our face off, right? No, sin has to be conquered. Sin is a war horse, So when they heard this four horsemen, they understood, okay, the battle is on. Sin isn't just going to wave the white flag. And Jesus, as his kingdom comes and this day approaches, there's going to be a growing battle and conflict because that's what's been happening since Genesis 3. Since the fall of man, there's been a battle between good and evil, Satan and God, sin and righteousness. And we know, yes, Jesus wins. In the throne room of heaven, there's gonna be and is unceasing worship of the Lion of Judah who conquers through becoming the Lamb that was slain, which is reality. But on the surface, for you and for me, what is seen by us between Christ's first and second coming, other things are going to seem to be winning and the conflict is gonna be intensifying. Sin's not gonna go quietly into the dark. And the closer evil gets to its termination date, the louder it's gonna get the more it's going to squirm. And y'all, I don't have to look outside to the world to know that. I can just look inside of me. That when sin is being exposed in my life, when Jesus is confronting that in my life, here's what I tend to do. I get defensive. I get dismissive. I deflect. I blame. I shift focus on other people, right? Whatever I have to do to not face the reality of what's going on, it's resistance. But I'm just, I'm, man, I hope this is landing. <laughs> resistance means something good is happening amidst the bad. I know that seems hard to kind of wrap your head around, some, it does for me some days. When that's, that resistance is getting noisy, it means something good's afoot too. Right? So, oh man, I need to wrap up. If all that's true, point two, that's, that's the coming judgment. If all that's true, how then should we live as believers in light of this reality? And I think we get uh, a couple of pointers from the saints who it says there, the saints under the altar in this fifth seal, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, right? We get some pointers from them. one, I kind of made this point. Don't be surprised that sin and evil, right, in this world. Don't be surprised. Don't be naive. It's intensifying, yes, and that means that Jesus' return is afoot, right? I'm not talking about I know what day it's going to happen or anything like that, but don't be surprised at sin and evil, right? The second thing is this. They're praying, right? They're praying. How long, oh, Lord? Lord. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and you avenge our blood. And each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. Until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So, second thing, don't be surprised. Second thing is this, join the prayer, right? They're in the throne room of heaven worshiping the Lord and they're praying something, right? Waiting is hard. We're horrible at waiting. I'm horrible at waiting, you know? If a page doesn't load in under a second, I'm frustrated I want them to give me, you know, faster internet, right? But we join the prayer. That's one of the chief things that we can do as believers right now, and that prayer is this. How long, O Lord, how long till you come back? That's not something I hear a lot of people praying. It's not something I realize, I, I don't pray a whole lot, right? I wake up and think about my day. I don't wake up and say, Lord, come. Come back, right? And how long is acknowledging this? I'm acknowledging the Lord is the one who is sovereign. He's the one. I'm not naive about the fact that I can't make heaven come on earth through my own power and through my own ability. He's the one who's got to do that. So how long is a prayer of, Lord, you're sovereign? And if those who have died in Christ and who are in the presence of the Lord are praying that, those of us who are alive in Christ can join in on that prayer and pray, Lord, come back. I know every one of the pastors was praying he would come back before we had to preach this sermon. <laughs> right? Join the prayer. So don't be surprised. Join the prayer. Here's another hard one. Don't avenge yourself. Right? How long, Sovereign Lord, who's holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? You know, Romans 12, 19 says, leave room for God to avenge, right? Don't take vengeance upon yourself. So it's something that I think, I know Christians, I can struggle with too, you know, when I've been sinned, I, that um, I, I want to judge, I want to avenge, right? What's, what's happened to me? But actually turning that to the Lord and saying it's your place to judge, it's your place to avenge, why? Because you're the one who is holy and true, right? I'm not the one who's holy and true. Any holiness and truth that I have in me is because you've given it to me because of what Jesus did for me. So I don't avenge myself because I know, Lord, ultimately you're gonna be the judge of all things. So don't be surprised. Join in the prayer. Don't avenge yourself. And then lastly, it's this robe up. Is what I wrote? Robe up. Those who have been given a white robe. If you remember why, it talks about this in, in Revelation 7, why you got the white robe. And why it was white, it's kind of a, a play on words. is It's white because they washed it in the blood of the lamb, which is like, how is something white if you wash it in blood, right? Why we have the robe in the first place. Why we are saints under the altar. Just that, that phrase, think of it like a tornado. You know, I grew up in Indiana, so you know, we were always afraid of tornadoes in the Midwest, right? Get under something sturdy enough, Right? Well, the altar was there because the altar is a place where sacrifice for sin was made, which is what the slain lamb is on top of, right? Get under the altar, be humbled, right? Robe up because I needed, you needed his blood to wash your sin away. And that robe of righteousness, I could not earn it. It had to be given to me by him. And it's the only thing that if I have it, then I can actually say with all of the difficulty of this that is coming, that we are experiencing already, I can actually rest and realize I may not be prevented from being caught up in the great repo, right? Of Portland brew. But ultimately one day I will be preserved because of the righteousness of Christ and what he has done for me. And so when I put on that robe, right? I can actually join that prayer. I can actually not avenge myself and I can actually not live naive that, yeah, sin is getting noisy, the evil is intensifying, but the lamb is on his throne and we can take comfort and peace in that, all right? Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, hmm. you are holy, uh, you are righteous and you are true. And uh, this morning, um, we join those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony. Uh, We join them in saying, how long, O sovereign Lord? Come, like all of creation is calling, come back. Father, forgive us uh, for ways um, that we uh, don't keep that posture, uh, but we try to make heaven here on earth ways that we uh, don't... um, actually turn to you uh, to trust and know that you are making all things new and you will make all things right and we take things into our own hands. And Father, forgive me, I know uh, for many days, I, I live like you're not coming back. I'm like the the, the person who ballot, buried their talent uh, because they didn't believe the master was returning. So many days I live, Father, uh, domesticating my sin and making peace with it rather than realizing You're coming to defeat it. Um, So thank you, uh, Lord, that we know that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Pray that our hearts would rest in that truth. Uh, And may we, uh, even now, for these next few minutes, worship you from that place and go out this week sobered, um, but at the same time, safely hopeful uh, in what you've accomplished. uh, Lamb that was slain. In your name, amen.